First question comes over here. All right. So, uh, clearly, I think the Bible is super clear that we are to test uh, someone's faith, test their words, test, you know, repentance is not just saying, I'm sorry, and, and moving on. Uh, and that's really what it seems to what are What are we to do when there's no evidence of repentance in someone's life? So, in this scenario, there's clear evidence of Joseph's brothers being repentant for what they had done and how they treated him and treating the younger brother differently. Uh, what happens when, when that's not there? Yes. When there's no evidence, no fruit in keeping with repentance. Yes. What do we do when there is no fruit in keeping with repentance? Well, uh, for one, we're always supposed to speak the truth. Right. Always speak the truth. And the truth is love. Yeah, right. It says in Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love. And in 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7, that true love rejoices with the truth. And the gospel is called the word of truth, Colossians 1.5. Right. So that means that we also always should be about speaking the truth. And that's how we show our love for one another. Uh, better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Yeah. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Proverbs 27, 5 to 6 and 27, 17. That's the way we should always be. Whenever we see someone that we suspect <coughs> is not living according to God's word. We must speak the truth. And as we do that consistently, that one who, who refuses to repent, if he is able, he will avoid you. Right. He'll walk away, either from the relationship or from the friendship or from the church. He will walk away. Right. And that's okay. Yeah. That's okay. Um, one more uh, verses. Second Corinthians thirteen five. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test. Everyone, including ourselves, we should be testing ourselves. Okay, then, what should we do in the local church if someone claims to repent or claims to be a believer? but does not actually practically repent. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 explains. 1 Corinthians 5. The whole chapter is relevant, but particularly verse 11 in reference to a so-called brother, a brother in name only, a nominal brother. He says in verse 11, but actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother, if he should be an immoral person, meaning sexually immoral, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Right. Not even to eat with such a one. In this context, there is a sexually immoral man. The Corinthian church did nothing about it. The apostle rebukes them for it and tells them that he... He, that man, should be removed from the Corinthian church. 
because he's unrepentant. He's not showing forth fruit in keeping with repentance. To use the phrase you mentioned uh, from Matthew 3, 1 to 12 and Luke 3, 7 to 14. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If that is not forthcoming in the local church setting, then that person ought to be removed. As he says in 1 Corinthians 5.13, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Right. Okay, is that answering the part? That, that is, okay. and then a follow-up to that, if I may. Uh, how condemning of the church in a general sense in, in America is it that because we don't do that, we don't hold people accountable uh, and, and examine their lives and then call it out when it's not there. Uh, how, how, might, how has that affected our society's view of Christianity, in your opinion? Oh, it's very, very, very severe, very bad, that we as churches don't do it, right. speaking generally, we as churches don't do it, and then what people think a true Christian is gets distorted in the world. And a lot of people think that they are Christians when they're not Christians. They consistently bear rotten fruit. Therefore, they are not true Christians. Matthew seven thirteen to 29. Christ says, so then you will know them by their fruits. Matthew seven sixteen. You will know them by their fruits, either good or bad fruit. One way or the other. And what does Christ think of local churches like that? Revelation chapters 2 and 3 explain where he threatens them. He threatens them in areas where they are sinning. Revelation chapter 2. Revelation 2. After he commends many of these churches, he also threatens them with condemnation. Um, he says in Revelation 2.4, But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Re- remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. He says also in chapter 2, Revelation 2, verse 14, But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam and who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Thus, you also have some in the same way who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Chapter 2, verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray, so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will cast her upon a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. 
And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. These are the a few examples. Christ expects us to handle sin in the local church. He expects us to do it. So we should. And if we don't do it, you are mentioning the culture or the society around us. What happens there? Well, what happens there? Romans chapter 2 explains that. Romans 2. 223 223 to 24 He says, "You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you." Yes. Just as it is written, "The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles." Because of you. And then, when the leaders of the church are circumspect, that's good. Because it says in 1 Timothy 3, 3, 7, he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he may not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. That excludes a whole lot of pastors. Yeah. <laughs> pastors, pastors cannot be pastors and racists. And there are a lot of pastors, both white and black and all other colors, who are racist because they make everything about racism. That should disqualify them immediately no from the pastorate. There are a whole lot of pastors who are sexually immoral. That should disqualify them immediately. immediately. There are a lot of pastors who are greedy for money. That should disqualify them immediately. Go on and on, whatever the sin. There's a whole lot of pastors practicing these unethical or immoral behaviors. That's just talking about the way they live. What about what they believe? A lot of what they believe about God and the gospel, Jesus Christ, man, the true way of salvation, is corrupt. It's completely contrary to scripture. That also should disqualify them. No doubt. Also, because they are causing God's name to be blasphemed among the Gentiles. And they do not have a good reputation with those outside the church. Nope. They're not above reproach. They are under the control and snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. That's what they're doing. So, therefore, they, there is a whole lot of pollution everywhere. No doubt. Within Christianity. We're not living up to God's word. And you're not asking about all of the excuses. Well, we're just supposed to love each other. We're not supposed to judge each other. But that's all, all out of context. That's a complete distortion of God's word. No doubt. When they use those excuses. Love is confrontation. If it's dealing with the legitimate confrontation of sin. That is the loving thing to do. Like we said, 1 Corinthians 13 teaches that. The love chapter teaches that. That we should rejoice with the truth. And God incarnate, or love incarnate. God is love, 1 John 4, 8. Who was displayed? He who has seen me has seen the Father, John 14, 9. 
Christ was that way. Christ rebuked people. He rebuked his own disciples. He rebuked um, curious people. He rebuked obstinate people. He rebuked anybody and everybody. When sin was right there, he said something about it according to the need of the moment. Sometimes mildly, sometimes severely. It depended on the situation. But he did rebuke whenever there was sin. That was love incarnate who did that. We should emulate him. John 13, 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the teacher and the Lord, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And he didn't mean just that. No. He meant in every, every way. Right. Yes. Okay, second question. Yeah, so, so why is it that people like to hijack the, okay, wash each other's feet, uh, we should accept and love each other like Christ did, but then not practice these corresponding virtues of Christ, uh, rebuking sin. I mean, because today in the churches and in the culture, uh, just accepting people the way they are, believe, you know, you'll, people will even say we should believe all things. Uh, <laughs> and that just means if someone says something, you just believe it, give them the benefit of the doubt, and that is itself the virtue. When it's actually, it's contrary to the virtue, which is to test, right? To, to test is seen as something loathsome and unvirtuous, whereas not testing is seen as a virtue. So why is that the case? And then how does also that tie into the corrupt view of mankind, of free will, Pelagianism, uh, those factors in the church as well, the theology. Okay, there's a few things you've asked there or said. Let me try to remember them and take them one by one. Um, one, in reference to believe all things, that's out of context. That's 1 Corinthians 13 in 4 to 7. That's verse 7. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Um, but right before it, Let's read it from 4 to 7. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Okay, in verse 7, if it says bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, does it bear, believe, hope, and endure jealousy, verse 4? Nope. Boastfulness, bragging, and arrogance in verse 4? Uh. Un, uh, unbecoming behavior, seeking one's own, provo- provocation, taking into an account a wrong suffered? No. So in context, all things does not mean in the absolute sense all things the way people take it. In context. That means that when they say believes all things, they are taking God out of context. 
So they're not being loving toward God. Right. It's not loving to take God out of context. It's not loving to take one another out of context. Would the perverter of Scripture like to be taken out of context? Can we take him out of context? No, he'll be very upset. We'll, he'll, he would be very upset if we took him out of context. If we take him out of context, can we accuse him of robbery, of sexual perversion? Can we accuse him of that? Can we accuse him of any of the, anything like that? You'll say, no. No, that's wrong. You can't do that. That's unloving. Then why are they taking us out of context? Why are they taking God out of context? Accusing God of endorsing sin. He's not. God is not endorsing sin. Also, Proverbs 14, 15 says, The naive believes everything, but the prudent man considers his steps. Proverbs 14, 15 does not contradict 1 Corinthians 13, 7. No, of course not. We can't be naive because he says the naive. Obviously, naive is a negative use of the word. He's not talking about innocent people. He's talking about gullible people. Gullible people believe everything. And if they say we have to believe everything, okay, then will they accept that I am a self-proclaimed prophet? I am a prophet. I am a true prophet. And as a true prophet, I have a word for you. And will they listen to every word I say? No. But they just told me they're supposed to believe everything. Why won't you believe that I'm a prophet then? A true prophet. And whatever I say is authoritative from this moment forward for your life. No, they'll reject it. Which shows that, that they are hypocrites. They don't truly believe in God, God's word, the gospel, and even what they're saying. Because right. no it could easily be refuted. Easily refuted. They don't believe all things. They're liars. Absolute liars. And take God out of context and make God a liar. Either God's the truth teller or they are. Okay, that was one point. Could you hi highlight another point uh, that you made? So then it comes down they have to love sin. Yes. Yes, that's what it is. They love sin. They have to love sin. Either we love the Savior or we love sin. Right. Either we love the Lord or we love lies. It's one or the other. Christ did not give us an alternative. No. Everything about him ha has to do with love and hate. It has to do with love and hate. Matthew 6.24. Matthew 6.24 now, love and hate are strong words, and biblically they are strong words. Yep. They, they don't mean prefer, opinion, suggestion. They don't mean anything in any mitigated way. They mean love and hate. Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. No one can serve two masters. We have a love-hate relationship. If we love the Lord, we hate everything that's contrary to the Lord. Matthew 10, 10, 34, 
Matthew 10, 34 to 39. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life shall lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. Do we love Christ or love our relations? Who do we love? It cannot be both at the same time when our relations deviate from Christ. Luke 14, 14, 25 to 27. Luke 14, 25. Now great multitudes were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Either we are his disciple or we're not. And how do we show it? We love him and hate all else, including ourselves. He doesn't mean hate ourselves by depriving ourselves of food and water, no, uh, beating ourselves over the head with a hammer. He's not talking about hate in that way. He's talking about hate our sin. Right. Just like we should hate the sin in others. And if sin rises up, there is a choice. Either we love Christ or love the sin, whether in us or in others. He's saying it cannot be both ways. There is a love-hate relationship between us and him, and us and others. We have to figure it out. Figure that out. Love or hate. If it's a matter of sin, follow Christ. But people claim to follow Christ, but love their sin. They claim to follow him. Titus 1.16. They profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him. By their deeds, they deny him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. That was another part of it. Anything more? Uh, Pelagianism. Pelagianism. Okay, Pelagianism, named after a man named Pelagius, who lived about A.D. 400, and he believed that we are all born pure and innocent, without sin, without blemish. We're all born that way, and it's our environment that corrupts us, our environment, our upbringing, our teachers, our circumstances, whatever in the world, whether people or circumstances, They corrupt us, and though we have a good will and we have an absolute free will, a a libertarian free will, he believed, we are able to overcome. What we need is a teacher to help us to overcome. But otherwise, salvation is dependent upon us. Jesus did not die as a substitute to pay for our sins, on the cross. 
He denied the vicarious death of Christ on the cross. He denied it. He said Jesus died, but he didn't die as a payment, a substitute for our sins. Jesus died as an example of faithfulness and an example of doing God's will. He died in that way for us. So that's what he believed. He believed in the goodness of man. Now, he was a moralist, contrary to today's Pelagian. Today's Pelagian is Pelagian in terms of goodwill or free will, but Epicurean, Epicurean in reference to the way we live. Epicurus was a philosopher, and he believed in indulgence of the flesh. He was a Greek, and he believed in indulging the flesh. Uh, Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we may die. That was his mentality. That's what he taught. That was his philosophy. And so, if you believe in free will today, typically, today's free will is a combination of Pelagius and Epicurus. Um, Epicureanism is also called hedonism. Have fun. Everything is up to you and your free good will. So the two together is what we are dealing with today. But both of these are contrary to Scripture. No doubt. Because Jude actually mentions this in Jude verse 4. He says... For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. They deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Well, who was Jesus Christ? The Lord and Savior Master who died on the cross. He was anointed. Christ means anointed one. He was anointed to accomplish our redemption on the cross. Correct? They deny that he is the only source of salvation by his death and resurrection on our behalf. Both his identity and ministry, they deny Jesus' identity and ministry. But also, they live as they please. They live with a license to sin. To do as they please. Today, it's usually under the umbrella of liberty, Christian liberty, which is a biblical concept properly understood, but they distort it to mean they can do as they please. They have a license to sin. And the moment you talk about obedience or rejection of sin, they will call you a Pharisee or a legalist. They'll say your teaching works salvation. Well, that's not true. In fact, they are the Pharisees because they believe in the traditions of men that contradict the Scripture. They believe in self-indulgence. They believe in the love of money. They believe in the love of sin. They believe that's what the Pharisees did. Jesus accused the Pharisees of being that way. It says in Luke 16, 14, Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money. It says lovers of money were listening to all these things and they were scoffing at him. 
If we're not supposed to be lovers of money and we start preaching that, then people will say, you're a legalist. You're, you're a Pharisee. No, the Pharisees loved money. So you are the Pharisee accusing me of being a Pharisee. You hypocrite. Yeah. <laughs> you see the problem? So um, Pelagianism plus Epicureanism is modernism today. Today's modern Christianity. And that would be, when we were talking about, was it Norman Vincent Peale the other day? Yes. Uh, yes. Men like Hill really uh, mainstream that. Because it's, there's a Christian version, but then there's also a secular version. And they're almost identical. Yes. Norman Vincent Peale in the 1900s. Um, he and Billy Graham, probably in the 1900s, were two of the most popular of all preachers, and they distorted the truth. They, distor they distorted the masses. Peel has this phrase, the power of positive thinking. The power of positive thinking. Just be positive. Just be positive. Don't say sin. Don't say death. Don't say curse. Don't say heresy. Just be positive about everything. Wink and nod and, and practice the Sergeant Schultz mentality of Hogan's <laughs> Heroes, that TV show. I know nothing. I see nothing. I did not even wake up this morning and walk out of the room whenever a controversy arises. That's the mentality, the power of positive thinking. But that's Satanism. Yep. Satanism is the power of positive thinking because Satan wants to remove the fact that we are lost sinners in need of salvation only found in Christ. And the proof that we belong to Christ is that we live for Christ. We live like Christ. Right. Conform our minds to the mind of Christ. For we have the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2.16. Now I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And do not be conformed to this world, but be right. transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. <clears throat> Romans 12, 1 and 2. That's what the gospel teaches. So they preached a false gospel. Norman Vincent Peale and Billy Graham. But it's appealing to human nature. I want to be able to live as I please. I want somebody to assuage my guilty conscience week after week, day after day. I want somebody to tell me I'm good, I'm fine, I can live as I please now in my sin today and then go to heaven tomorrow. They want that. They want that assurance. And, it, and that's pervasive in the culture, in the church. I mean, it's so everywhere. We, we have to fight against this with everything that we have. And many of us probably were raised in churches that were dripping with this type of mentality. Oh, yes, yes. We were raised in churches with this mentality. Yes. Dripping, oozing, gushing with this mentality. That's the way of the church. The moment you say, uh, preach against sin, generally and specifically, and start to name names, then you'll be hated. A church of, uh, of 100 might become a church of two and a half. Right. A church of 1,000 might become a church of maybe 20. That's how it happens. 
It happens that way. And the pastors know it. Therefore, it's better to keep quiet and earn the paycheck and just make sure that nothing scandalous comes to the surface. So then they hide sin. Whenever sin does occur in their local churches, they're always sweeping it under the rug, always delaying the confrontation of it. They don't handle it. All right. Time for another one? Another question? Yes. So you mentioned that Joseph might have known that the Christ was coming through Judah at this point? Yes. You, obviously you have Genesis, I think it's 49, Jacob prophesies that, but that's later. Is there, like, is there a reason why you think that he might know that it was through Judah already? Well, in, yes, how d- would Joseph know it's through Judah? Um, there is this possibility from chapter 35. Genesis 35, Genesis 35, when Rachel dies, 35, 16 to 21, 35, 16 to 21. Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth, and she suffered severe labor. And it came about, when she was in severe labor, that the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for now you have another son. And it came about, as her soul was departing, for she died, that she named him Ben-Oni, for, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her grave, that is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Then Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Adar. Ephrath, so it's on the way to Ephrath, Bethlehem, near Bethlehem, and also he sets up a pillar and pitched his tent by the tower, tower of Adar. Tower, Adar means flock. Okay, well, why would that be important? Who, which tribe eventually inherited that area? Judah. Judah. And that was by lot in the days of Joshua. But the lot that's cast into the lap, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord, Proverbs 16.33. Though it was an accident in terms of human action, it was not an accident according to divine decree, right. right? Later, in the time of Joshua. But still, we have this note about Bethlehem. Why do we need to know? Why are we told that it happened there? Bethlehem that belongs to Judah, the tribe of Judah. Well, the ancient Jewish translators of this passage, they say this, ancient Jewish We're not talking about Christian, so we're talking about Jews. Jews who understood had some insight into this locality. It says this. This is called uh, Targum Yerushalmi I. Quote, the Tower of Eder, the place from whence it is to be, the King Mashiach will be revealed 
at the end of the days. At the end of the days. At the end of the days has reference to the times of Christ, the times of Messiah, between his first and second comings. They know that, and they say he's going to be revealed there. Messiah, Christ, is going to be revealed there. King Messiah is going to be revealed there. And another one called Targum uh, Yonathan ben Uziel, quote, the place from whence the King Messiah will be revealed in the end of days. Unquote. They believe that also. What's significant about that? Remember what Micah said, Micah the prophet? Micah said that he would be born in Bethlehem, right? Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Micah 5, 2. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. This is quoted in Matthew 2, 6, in fulfillment of the prophecy. Herod, unbelieving Herod, asks the unbelieving religious authorities of the Jews in Matthew 2, where is the Christ to be born? And the unbelievers say, Micah says, in Bethlehem of Judah, right? The unbelieving ones say, they know that that's where he's supposed to be born. But now the tower, the tower that's there, near there. Micah 4, verse 8. And as for you, Micah 4, 8. And as for you, tower of the flock. That means tower of Adar. Hill of the daughter of Zion. To you it will come. Even the former dominion will come. The kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. The kingdom will come to you, tower and then, one more place, and then a follow, uh, your follow-up comment or question. Luke chapter 2. Luke 2. In Luke 2, 8 to 20, Luke 2, 8 to 20, the shepherds, the shepherds are told about the birth of Christ. Yeah. And what do shepherds do? They take care of the flock. They shepherd the sheep, the flock, right? And then, where did it occur? They, Joseph and Mary went to Bethlehem, right? And that's where Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Luke chapter 2, 1 to 7. And then when the angel of the Lord announces this to the shepherds, it says, verse 15, 2, 15, And it came about when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And where likely were they? It says in verse 8, And in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. They were likely at or by the tower of the flock, the Tower of Ader. And then when they were informed of the birth of Christ, they went quickly to Bethlehem, which was not too far for them 
to see Christ. Okay? So that's why, and it starts, at least that part of it, at least, is in Genesis 35. And 35 is before 37. So Joseph would have been in that upbringing if it's likely the case, I believe, Jacob the prophet, Joseph's father, knew. And as a good teacher, he would have taught his family to anticipate the birth of Christ there. In the area where Rachel died. Okay, you have a follow-up? Yeah, it was, it was right there, which that probably led to Jacob's prophesying of Judah in chapter 49. Yes. And then yes. also Micah is not you know, prophesying out of nothing. He's using, he, he has the Pentateuch yes. and everything. He has all that as well. So he's, he's giving us um, his prophetic interpretation of Yes. Earlier thing, earlier text. Yes, yes. Micah is not speaking in a vacuum. He is an interpreter and commentator of earlier passages. Chronologically and canonically earlier passages. That's what Micah is doing. In fact, after the books of Genesis to Numbers, Deuteronomy is a commentary of the preceding books. And then when we get to Joshua and and the rest of the prophets, from Joshua to Malachi, they are commentators, interpreters of the preceding revelation of God. When we come to Christ and the apostles in the New Testament, they also are the authoritative commentators of previous revelation. They expand and explain. They reiterate, emphasize points here and there in order for us to understand. The gospel's already in the book of Genesis. And then there are further explanations and interpretations, expansions in the later books with commentary. They teach us how to replicate their method. So they have a reproducible hermeneutic. The theologians ask the question, is the hermeneutic of the apostles a reproducible or irreproducible hermeneutic method of interpretation? And the definitive answer is, it is indeed reproducible. We should reproduce the apostolic method because it is accurate, authoritative. Yet no one reproduces it. What's that? <coughs> yet, yet no one reproduces it, yes. There are there, no one today, basically, but there are a few in the past, some in the past who, who have done so done so well. But yes, in modern times, you can't do that because they don't want one gospel for everyone to believe and one way to live. They want many gospels and many ways to live so that they can live in sin. Going back to the earlier question. All right. Thank you.